Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to an FS Club seminar, which uh, coincidentally uh, times with London Climate Action Week. I'm uh, really thrilled to have Dr. Ben Caldecott here. Uh, ben is going to be talking, uh, I'm afraid to a title we thought we would like, which was No COP26ing Out, uh, Green Transformation Beckons. Uh, and Ben very kindly permitted us uh, to use this to try and grab your attention. And we have quite a few people um, online today, uh, and I know that many of you are, are quite interested in this. And this is a sort of an intimate opportunity to rethink COP26, which, as we know, has been paused and restarted a year later. Now, uh, as far as FS Club goes, uh, you'll all know me, Michael Minelli, and I really am thrilled to be uh, delivering uh, this set of lectures uh, because what makes it exciting is, believe it or not, our sponsors. Uh, there's always the obligatory thanks to the sponsors, but this is a heartfelt one. Our sponsors are phenomenal in allowing us to range widely and freely over technology, economics, and finance, uh, often with a social purpose. And many of our sponsors have got deep interests either in uh, states and infrastructure or green finance or green bonds or what have you. So I know that many of you out there are very, very interested in that as well. Uh, the program today is Ben is uh, going to share his thinking with us for about 20 to 25 minutes. And we'll move on to about 15 minutes of questions and answers. Uh, could I remind you, please, don't email them to me. I'm not on email. I'm paying attention to Ben. But there is a facility in the GoToWebinar box on your screen, which allows you uh, to send us questions. And I will field them in the time available uh, to Ben. If you have any direct questions or things that uh, you want to pick up on, I will, uh, of course, uh, send your details on to Ben afterwards so that you can make a direct connection. Uh, may I anyway uh, leave it at that, because my job is as ever to get out of your way and get on to the main event. Uh, but I just thought I'd point out two uh, quick things, if I might. Uh, the first is that uh, we at CN run the Global Green Finance Index, uh, which you can uh, see online and the materials will be on the site. Uh, but one of the things we've been seeing is that the key drivers in green finance, the only thing that really distinguishes it from any other form of finance, is the heavy dependence on policy and regulatory frameworks and public attitudes and investor demand towards climate change, which is what this spider diagram shows. So far more than relying on academic research or voluntary standards, what matters is uh, regulatory frameworks. Uh, and the second thing is that uh, whilst there are a number of things that could be said to dominate, uh, sorry, to to be a part of a market for green finance. Actually, a lot of it is dominated by the green bond area and sustainable infrastructure finance and many other areas that people talk about, uh, green tech backed venture capital, carbon markets, climate stress resistant uh, green loans, haven't as yet taken off. Uh, and I think uh, raising the importance of the issue uh, with somebody like Ben is going to be very, very helpful in terms of getting us to see green more broadly and the opportunities that COP26 affords us. So Ben, uh, with no further ado, may I hand over to you? Great, well, thank you very much, Michael, and thank you for that kind introduction. So um, I'm Ben Coldcott. I The day job is running a research center at the University of Oxford focused on sustainable finance and aligning finance with sustainability. But I, um, since November, have been on secondment for two days a week uh, in the cabinet office um, in the COP26 unit, working as the strategy advisor for finance there. Um, and so Michael asked me to say a bit about um, COP and how it's emerging, developing, why it's important, some of the issues that are, that are coming up as well. Um, I guess I should say caveat that this is my own personal view rather than government policy or anything like that, just to, to make sure I've got that, that safety, 
safety harness on. Um, so the, I guess the first thing to say about COP is that it's, it, well, well, it was meant to be five years after the Paris Agreement, so COP, COP 15. Um, and the reason that's important is that five years after the Paris Agreement, we're supposed to do kind of two things. One is to finish off um, something called the Paris Rulebook, which is essentially the, the, the rules that govern the international climate regime into the future. And so there was a, a period after Paris to, to figure all that out. And that's largely been done. There are a few outstanding issues, in particular one related to carbon markets. So that's a sort of top negotiating priority. Um, and the other is that this is a moment for governments, parties to the Paris Agreement, to ratchet up their ambition, their, car their carbon their reduction, emission reduction commitments and promises. Um, and under the Paris Agreement, every five years, governments would come together. They would revise their targets based on the latest science. Um, and we saw that at Paris, although it it brought forward the creation of this sort of change in the dynamic from a top-down, an attempt to create a top-down system to the emergence of a bottom-up one, governments still collectively um, only made commitments that would get us to something like 2.8, 3, 3.2, something depending on the analysis you look at, um, of, of, of warming. Um, which is significantly above the well below two degrees target of the Paris Agreement. So it's really important that at this COP, um, that governments come together to make sure that their targets collectively add up to something that is more likely to achieve a well below two degree commitment. Um, so that's the sort of, the, some of the high level context. In terms of the UK presidency, uh, obviously you've got these different really important tracks, um, in particular the negotiations track and colleagues um, in, in the cabinet office working on those very diligently to, to get the negotiated outcomes that are required. Now, I'm kind of more focused on um, some of the, the kind of the, the key themes that we, we want to make progress on. A lot of these are, are sectoral or thematic, um, and they are the five of them. Um, the first of which is nature and the, and the relationship between nature and climate change. Um, which is a very important area, both for mitigation, how ecosystems and habitats can help to sequester carbon, but also for climate adaptation. Um, uh, mangrove swamps, for example, helping to absorb storm energy um, uh, and protecting cities and coastal areas, for example. There are lots of other examples. Um, and the nature theme is also has has kind of you know been accelerated. Um, by the the connection with zoonotic diseases as well. So there's a sort of a zoonotic disease climate security resilience connection there, and there are lots of colleagues working on on those dimensions. Um, another theme is what we call adaptation and resilience, which is um, climate adaptation, um, particularly in developing countries, and that's a really important feature of the international negotiations and the international process. We need to make sure that developing countries have access to the resources and the capabilities required to adapt to, to a changing climate, because obviously the climate is already changing. Um, and uh, we've, we've seen that particularly in the last 12 months in different parts of the world. Um, admittedly, uh, a, a lot of those examples that come to mind for us in the UK are those in other developed economies, um, particularly those with Mediterranean climates. Um, so bits of Australia, um, California, and so on and so forth. Uh, but this is that theme is particularly focused on developing countries. Um, another is uh, zero emission vehicles and the, the transformation that's underway in the transport sector. 
and the move away from the internal combustion engine. Another one is clean energy, both the expansion of investment in clean energy, but also the phase out of fossil energy. Um, and then the fifth is finance, and that's kind of where I'm, I sit and where I'm spending time. And obviously finance is cross-cutting. It's relevant to all of those other themes and making sure that capital is flowing in the right direction and the wrong direction is, is a critical for each of those themes to succeed. Um, within finance, there are a few um, areas that different bits of uh, the presidency are working on. Um, so you may have seen that Mark Carney uh, was appointed back in February as the Prime Minister's um, advisor on climate finance for COP26. Um, we have also got Nick Stern, who is working with the presidency, particularly on um, issues related to public finance. So you've got these two um, champions, leaders in the field, internationally respected, um, who, who are making a big contribution to the work we're doing on on finance. Um, but as I, as, I, as I was sort of suggesting, a, a big part of uh, what we have to do as a, as a presidency uh, is to deliver on public finance commitments. Uh, and that's been made even more important with COVID and the role of multilateral development banks and DFIs. Um, there's also, for those of you that follow this kind of thing, um, there, there was a commitment made to achieve 100 billion of climate finance. So this is basically primarily, not entirely, but primarily um, official development assistance from developed countries into developing countries for climate mitigation adaptation. So making sure we make progress on that commitment and also agreeing a new commitment for, for that promise to developing countries is a, is a key part of the finance track. Another part is on supervision and central banking. So all of the brilliant work that Carney led um, in the Bank of England, how can we make sure that that gets adopted across other jurisdictions and good progress is really being made on that through something called the Central Banks and Supervisors Network for Greening the Financial System, the NGFS. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking about the Bank of England's and the PRA's supervisory statement, which applies to UK regulated banks and insurers. So that being copied in different jurisdictions. We saw this week that the Monetary Authority of Singapore has basically uh, adopted something very similar. Um, there are also climate stress tests um, that need to be introduced uh, and uh, I, I believe our climate stress test, which is supposed to be happening this year, has been deferred until next year, but making progress there. And then there are a whole bunch of other issues, particularly around um, disclosure and reporting and TCFD adoption, which is another priority for the presidency and particularly for, for Mark Carney. Um, there are two other things. One is what we call innovative financing mechanisms. And this is basically how, you know, what are the structures, what are the mechanisms, um, what are the instruments we need to get money to flow into green and away from polluting um, infrastructure. So, uh, you know, that can range from um, the future of carbon markets to the emergence and support of sustainability-linked loans. It could be um, so-called just transition transactions, ways that you can support incumbent fossil fuel companies, say, in a developing country to move away from coal, a whole range of things there. And then the thing that I'm spending a lot of time on is kind of really around getting um, different bits of the system to sign up to ambitious, consistent, and comparable commitments themselves. So essentially, financial institutions are promising to become net zero by mid-century, setting out detailed plans for how they will get there, and us achieving and securing commitments from 
um, banks, asset managers, different types of asset owner, um, from insurers, all sorts of other bits of the system. And to do that across the world and to do that in a way for the first time is, is, is systematic and, um, and hopefully will result in us having commitments that, are, that enable ready comparison. Because one of the, the trends that you notice with these COTS and with summits generally is that financial institutions do love to make a good announcement, but then um, you don't know whether they've actually done anything about it and you can't track it and there's no accountability. And that is not what we want for COP26. Um, and a lot of that work is being led with um, Nigel Topic, who is the uh, UK high-level climate action champion. Um, the the high-level climate action champion is a role that was created in the Paris Agreement. So it's basically a champion for non-state actors. And he works with a colleague from the previous COP president. Um, so those are those. That's a sort of a canter through what is COP. What are some of the priorities? What are some of the things we're trying to do on finance and financial institutions? Um, if we go to the next slide, Morgan has very kindly prepared some slides to prompt me to remember things, which is very helpful. Um, so the next slide is around COVID and COP, and I know many of you will be thinking about. COVID and what that means for your business and, and also for the development of sustainable finance. And we're also thinking carefully about this within the COP unit. Um, so just some thoughts. Uh, I mean, obviously, um, it's showing that rapid change is possible. It's putting more pressure on incumbents in different industries. It's helping to establish new norms. The fact that we're doing this online, maybe you did this online before, Michael, all the time, but I must admit, I feel like I'm becoming a, a video conferencing pro. Whereas before I hated, hated the whole it's thing. Easy um, uh, getting used to you know ten hours a day of Zoom calls. Anyway, so the you know th th some things are changing rapidly, and a lot of those changes can support a greater ambition. We've also got you know these trillions of dollars of bailouts and stimulus that have already been agreed on or are in the process of being agreed on, and you know frankly if that if those do not support the transition um uh, you know it's very hard to see how we're going to be able to meet the paris agreement it, it's sort of similar actually to some other big kind of investment programs like china's belt and road you know if you, if you can't align china's belt and road with this stuff we're just not going to be able to achieve it on a global basis the trillions associated with the covid bailouts and stim stimulus is, is similarly it's just so big that you've got to make sure it's aligned um and I think there is an opportunity for us to use this time to, to try and do that very, very effectively or, or effectively. Um, and a lot of people are talking about that. And we've got to kind of get to the detail of what that means, um, particularly as we get into this second phase after we've got the money out the door through furlough schemes and, and other loan facilities to, you know, actually, are we, what kind of conditions are we going to add to the loans that we provide? Um, what happens when we own greater stakes in the economy? Um, how do we manage those stakes in the economy that's in a way that's going to be supportive? And, and, and what are the things that we invest in? So uh, you'll see this week and next week a variety of announcements from the UK government on green fiscal measures. Um, I understand. So yeah, some of those things will, will, will send a, a positive signal. But, um, you know, it's, it's not just the UK. It's all these other governments that are pouring trillions into stimulus that need to get this right and we need to learn very rapidly what what's possible so there are lots of examples um that are emerging that i think we should pay attention to here but also in other jurisdictions um 
uh, and I'm probably a bit out of date already because these things are changing so quickly, but, you know, things like the France KLM bailout, um, the French government basically said that you, you can't, we're not going to provide this bailout unless you sort out competition with high-speed rail on domestic routes and promise to reduce the emissions associated with your routes. Um, uh, and there have been other, other, other such examples. Canada has said we're not going to provide you the loans unless you sign up to the task force and climate related financial disclosures, for example. There are lots of other things that could be done. Um, another uh, kind of more kind of, you know, political logistical factor is, of course, it's been postponed. So COP is now not happening November this year. It's happening November next year. Um, or at least that's the plan, the hope, uh, assuming, you know, get the virus under control and all of that. Um, and that longer runway is, is, is beneficial for building the right kind of momentum. It also, uh, helps to clarify one of the big outstanding questions, sort of political questions that was hanging over COP, which is the US presidential election. So a November 2020 COP would mean that, um, you know, if, if Trump was reelected, that would be a problem for that process. Um, if Biden was elected, you'd have a president-elect who's literally just been made president-elect that wasn't president and therefore was would be sort of hamstrung. And um, at least with an extra year, we, we all know what the outcome will be. And if it's a new administration, then there'll be time to to build on that those commitments that they seem to be making on the Dem Democrat side. Um, but also then to, if it is a, another Trump administration, to um, manage and deal with that position that they will, that they may have. Um, uh, so, so that's important. I mean, the other thing to say, which is sort of maybe stating the obvious, but just particularly for people that aren't following this very closely or, have, or may have forgotten. I mean, the Paris Agreement in 2015 was a big deal, but it was born in a much more benign environment. Um, so not only I, you know, in some senses, it's, it's, it's easier, I think, to, to agree to something, um, a first of a kind thing like that, when that you, you can, you can promise, you're so far away from promising to actually, from having to do anything. So you're sort of committing to a process that's bottom up, that's not legally binding. Um, and no one's going to scrutinize what you're doing really until further in the future. It's quite easy to sign up to that kind of agreement. Right, Michael? Sorry. Yeah, just a quick question here from Cliff Moyce, Ben. He just was wondering if you could, uh, just explain which countries and regions are participating and which are not. You know, the scope is in, of the initiative is impressive, but he just wanted to understand the breadth of participation before we went on. Sure. Um, so, uh, well, uh, so you've got most countries are signed up to, um, UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And, um, most of those have signed up to Paris. Um, and, and Paris has been ratified as an international agreement. Um, the countries that haven't signed up, I think there are a couple of sort of small failed states usually. <laughs> um, uh, and then you, and then of course you've got the United States, which is, uh, Trump announced that he was going to withdraw from the Paris agreement, but that takes a, a couple of years to, to do. So it would, I can't remember the exact dates now, but it, I think the US will, will formally drop out, um, before, well, before the next swearing in ceremony for after the presidential election, I think. Oh, I think January. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, so it's 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 global. It's it's much more global than Kyoto, for example, and that's because it's not a top-down, legally binding international agreement in that sense. It's a look. It's a framework. You've got to promise to do stuff. You've got to report how you do that stuff in a consistent way. Hence the rule book. And we're going to collaborate to create some mechanisms to do stuff together. Um, but it's not. You must meet this target, and if you don't, we're going to sue you in in international courts. Do, you know, it's not that. It's a hence a much wider number of countries that have signed up. Um, but yeah, so 2015, much more benign environment. Um, so there's sort of the nature of securing that agreement in the first place, and then you have, you know, you have Obama in the White House. You have U.S.-China relations, particularly on climate, um, being in a pretty good state. You have. You know, the French being, being host, but having very little scrutiny over their own domestic actions, right? Whereas the UK government is probably having the most, and it's a good thing, but is having the most amount of d domestic and international scrutiny over its climate record and its own domestic policies than any other host, as far as I can tell. Um, which is, which is, a, which is a difference and it makes it harder politically. Um, and, uh, you, another factor just, that, that you know that I'm reminded of is the uh, the sort of sense of international solidarity during 2015 that in that month in December because of the Paris attacks. So there was a, a sort of a greater sense of solidarity because of that. Um, anyway, so those, those are a few factors why uh, you know the sort of political headwinds were were less, um, and the opportunities for collaboration. You know, you could argue might have been greater. So we, so we've got to, we've got to do something that's harder, objectively harder, and the headwinds are stronger. Um, so that, you know, that's a bit of, bit of context. Uh, I think there's also an opportunity with, I mentioned zoonotic diseases in nature. There's another big COP happening in 2021. It was also postponed from 2020, and that is the Conventional Biological Diversity COP 15, uh, which is happening in Kunming. In China, and that's important because it's it's a bit like Paris. Actually, it's a it's a bit they're they're, re, they're recreating the international framework for biodiversity and nature. Um, so, what are the international targets we want to have on protecting habitats and species, and what are the mechanisms and frameworks for doing that? So, it could be a very big big moment. And of course, these agendas are intimately related, and um, it's an opportunity we with more time to foster. That, that relationship. Um, okay, let's go to the next slide. Okay, the most we might uh, expect. Yeah, so what, what's the most we might expect and how should we measure success? Um, so I, I think, that, so one thing is that it, we've, we talk a lot about, the whole process is dominated by, by governments. Um, and one of the nice things about the Paris Agreement is that it sort of recognizes the role of non-state actors. And, and so non-state actors in the kind of, in the lingo basically means, you know, companies, financial institutions, cities, regions, subnational actors of different kinds. Um, and I think one thing we can do with COP and should do is to basically bring in non-state actors and make them on a par with state actors in the sense that we should also expect that non-state actors make firm commitments 
um, and that they're held accountable for those commitments. And, and that's, that's important, not only because it will help encourage them to take decisions and make choices that are important for tackling climate change, it will also change the, the domestic political dynamic in many countries, because one of the things that happens with governments is they go, well, it's terribly hard for us to, to sign up to a more ambitious commitment because we think that our the companies in our country won't support it or they won't do it or the banks won't, you know, won't wash with the banks or the big investors. And if you've got non-state actors actually making commitments themselves, it provides a bit of transparency for governments. And if non-state actors make progress, then governments are more likely to make progress. And if governments make progress, then non-state actors are also likely to make more progress because they see that governments are acting. So there's a sort of a nice, virtuous dynamic um, that could be created, I think. So that's one one area that we should make progress on. That's a measure of success. I think we need to look back in November next year and and if the bailouts and stimulus measures are not making a big difference for the for sustainability and climate, then uh, that's that that would be a big failure. And I think we as the presidency do need to be the standard bearer of a sustainable, resilient um, uh, recovery. And um, we're going to have to walk the talk domestically as well on that. Um, there is a very clear kind of negotiating requirement um, that people that work on this more could, could elaborate on, but essentially, essentially it's closing or finishing the Paris rulebook, that technical negotiation track, and making sure that we have the funding um, for developing countries. Um, and that will that will make or break uh, the negotiations, essentially. And then I'm hoping we can um, we can see across multiple sectors a kind of a, a clear tipping point, a clear trend um, where, where we've achieved peak demand for fossil fuels, where there is unprecedented amounts of capital shifting um, and committed to shifting um, and so those are sort of some of the things I'm hoping that we can we can achieve for, for COP26. Um, if we go to the next slide, uh, so it's a, a simple, well, I guess two things. So first is, um, I think over the next 18 months, we need to move from a, a climate risk management focus with with financial institutions so that's really how a lot of financial institutions are engaging with this topic so how do we manage material climate related risks how do we measure them a lot of that's driven by tcfd a lot of that's going to be driven by certainly the uk is already driven by supervisory uh, expectations and obligations um but managing climate risk is not the same thing as tackling climate change you can manage climate risk in ways that make no difference to the climate and i think um one of the things we need to start doing much more of is thinking about what can individual financial institutions do in, you know, either themselves or collectively to align with actual climate outcomes. And what does that, what does that mean, um, in practice? Uh, and, 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 and so I think part of, part of that shift is these commitments, um, and particularly participating in initiatives like the, Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, um, like the Science-Based Targets Initiative, uh, there are a variety of things like that that I think you know, more institutions need to think about and join and be proactive on. Um, but it's it's more generally kind of accelerating the shift between from climate risk management 
to or and alignment with climate outcomes. Um, you know, we if 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 in COP twenty six we are still just talking about climate risk disclosure, I will be very frustrated. <laughs> um, now the the next and the final slide, um, just some things less less about COP and and just all more about things that I think are important that I'm working on at Oxford that, I, that I, other people are working on too and are, and are gaining in momentum. Um, one thing is what what we call, and this is a, a, a phrase, a term we coined at Oxford, uh, which is spatial finance, which is the, geo, the integration of geospatial data and analysis into financial analysis. And this is a prerequisite for measuring and managing climate-related risks and impacts, as well as other environmental risks and impacts, as well as a whole bunch of other things, to be able to see what's going on in companies in near real time without disclosure, um, allows you to understand, interpret, investigate, examine all sorts of aspects of company performance or asset performance, um, and I think opens up quite exciting dimensions to uh, financial analysis and the future of financial practice. So that is a that's a big deal over the next couple of years um, and beyond. Um, but you're going to hear more about that, uh, and and that's going to be driven by uh, you know developments, new products and services, more data being available, people thinking about the use cases, and so on and so forth. And we're doing a lot of work on that at Oxford. Um, the next thing, and this kind of ties to what I was saying about moving from climate risk management to more about alignment and trying to achieve change. Um, which is that engagement um, and stewardship, I think, it, you know, is, is really at the beginning of what it can achieve. I, I think we're only starting to explore what's possible with engagement and stewardship. I think, you know, there's only so much you can do with shareholder resolutions, right? Engagement and stewardship is a much richer and more interesting, more powerful conversation uh than, than just than just that, um, and we're so again that's something else we're thinking a lot about, and 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 I don't think it's just limited to listed equities, which is um, often how it's framed. You know, this is an issue that straddles different asset classes, um, will entail and should entail new forms of cooperation. I think it will mean, basically, in the end, it will mean financial institutions trying to get permission from their clients to. Going to behave a bit more like NGOs, actually, um, and uh, that's kind of that's kind of interesting, um, and has implications for the future of shareholder democracy and all sorts of things. So I think that's a sort of figuring out what that all means is important. And then the third thing is nature, which I mentioned um, before. The other thing that will kind of, in addition to the CBD COP15 that I mentioned, um, and the interest in zoonotic diseases. Uh, there is now growing interest in a task force for nature-related financial disclosures. Um, I know I was a bit disparaging about disclosure, but the TCFD has been very good at foregrounding these issues for different actors. And so I think there's a lot of momentum now for a TNFD. Um, and the same logic applies, right? We don't do these, we, we know these risks are big and they're material. We can't price them. We don't know who's exposed. We need to think about it. And that's exactly the argument that was used for going with the TCFD and uh, and central banks and supervisors thinking more about climate risk, and the same applies to nature-related risks. So I'll stop there. Okay. Wow. Well, that is a, a, a great candor through an extraordinarily deep 
subject, almost planet-sized even. Um, uh, got a lot of questions here, so we're going to have to be a bit snappy, I think, in the time available, Ben. But um, let me just kick off. Uh, Marcel de Berg is curious, what knowledge is available within the UK presidency about the relationship that deforestation has contributed to global warming because it has disrupted the Earth's water balance? Uh, that seems to fit nicely into your kind of nature point earlier as one of the five themes. Yeah, uh, so I, I would argue um, that that is a, a really important aspect of the nature theme. There are lots of good people working on it. Um, one of the, the, the really good things, I think, about this effort um, to host a COP is that it's very inclusive of, of, ex, of expertise. Um, so you've got great people working on on nature issues and on forests in particular. Um, uh, you know, you've got people like Sir Graham Wynne and Justin Adams and, you know, a few other big names I can mention that, that are working, that, you know, they're, 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 they're focused on nature conservation and they know a lot about it and they're right in the center, um, advising. Um, Angel Gaviero Bastiero, um, is clearly looking ahead and, uh, sees a heck of a sized hill. Estimates of the funding effort required to get into a 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius path are, at minimum, uh, 12 billion to 15, sorry, 12 trillion to 15 trillion dollars, uh, perhaps more, and should be deployed at ASAP within the next 10 years. It looks impossible to fund this size in this time from the private uh, financial services industry. Uh, green markets are embryonic. What are your thoughts? <laughs> um. My thoughts are that we need to create the the economic signals, the cash flows that that's going to motivate and attract the public and private investment that's required, right? So that's a large part of what we need to do. We need to make sure that you can get a cash flow from generating clean energy um, or restoring nature. Um, and And we need to spend a lot more time on that, actually, than we have done. Um, and we still haven't cracked it. We've, we've barely, we've barely made any progress actually on how you pay for nature conservation. Precisely mm. bugger all actually in the last, you know, very little, shockingly little. And the idea that that's all going to be paid for by philanthropy and conservation NGOs is a nonsense. So we've got to think very carefully about how we create, create those mechanisms. And without them, we won't meet these investment requirements. But I, unless I'm more optimistic about the scale of, um, the ability to mobilize the capital if the, the returns are there, if the cash flows are there, but often we need to create them and that requires policy. Uh, Jeremy Wilson's asked a question. I hope I interpret it uh, appropriately, but I think what he's driving at is that building back from COVID-19 gives governments the opportunity to put strong green conditions into any area that's benefited from their stimulus measures. Uh, do you think this is helpful? Do you foresee the development of uh, some type of global best practice to help guide governments uh, internationally? So one simple thing that I think governments could do is that they could really embrace sustainability-linked loans. Um, and so the ICMA have just, have just produced some uh, sustainability-linked loan and bond guidelines. So this is basically, look, you've got, you've got to meet a sustainability KPI and then we, we, we reduce or increase the cost of capital depending and we can do that because we think that if you if you perform well, that will reduce your credit risk, and we sh can share some of that reduction in credit risk with you. Yeah, the so whole finance community, as you know, has been behind this for about fifteen years. This yeah. is what well, we exactly, yeah. term policy yeah. performance and, Totally, yeah. and so we so that, that that to me feels 
like quite a simple thing like you know if if now now the question is what are the metrics so um you know you you could you could be pretty simple or you could and crude or you could be much more sophisticated but as as, as michael was saying there's a lot of experience so doing that seems to be like a, a no-brainer um do you think that a government might issue a policy performance bond or sustainability linked uh guilt effectively would that be a great statement for the uk to make um so i'm i'm generally a bit sort of uh i think we talked about this before michael i mean i, I think <laughs> i think i'm sort of slightly skeptical of the, the policy performance bonds because it, it it creates suddenly a constituency that wants the government to fail um so that's one concern i have and then more generally on i mean there's sort of conversation about a green guilt and the germans are thinking about you know issuing green sovereign bonds and as are other jurisdictions and the poles have, have issued loads of green sovereign bonds you know how does that how does that how does that affect the real economy mm. you know we don't we don't have the time to, to mess around with things that don't make a difference to the, the actual economy okay um you've struck a note here on this non-state actor point uh, a couple of questions on that uh one was uh any quick uh indicators of kind of guidelines you would use for what makes a non-state actor able to get in or not and cliff moise would like to know what type of non-state actor has might make the biggest impact on climate change uh, well i think the uh, the presidency and uh, you know i mentioned nigel topping and high level climate action champion have very high standards for which non-state actors they will work with um so you know you've got to make you've got to do a variety of things um we're not going to give uh companies and others platforms to just do greenwashing um you know they've got to make proper ambitious commitments um to be given given a platform or to share a platform with the the presidency and and that applies to um you know events that the government's organizing amongst other things uh, so that's the an answer to one bit of that question in terms of which non-state actors are the most important for climate um in general uh you, you know in, in the climate world you, you get you get supply siders or demand siders right so there are a bunch of people that, that are like okay well the, the way i'm going to we're going to save the climate is by really lobbying the miners and the oil and gas companies to shut shut down production and you have demand siders and i'm a demand sider which is like Let's focus on reducing demand and eliminating demand, and that will sort out the supply side. So, mm -hmm. so I, I would start with the demand side. <laughs> um, well, it's great because um, actually we've got uh, Lasse Instafjord uh, Alsak dialing in from Norway, uh, and he points out a recent survey in Norway showed that 47% of the population would support COVID level style restrictions to handle the climate crisis. Uh, so governments could be bolder uh, and he continues uh, with another comment that about a week ago 29 investing firms some major scandinavian banks church of england etc requested a meeting with the brazilian diplomats regarding deforestation in the amazon uh, together they controlled uh, supposedly 3.7 trillion dollars worth of assets in brazil do you think we'll see more of this in the future uh, i do and i hope we do and i think um Again, that's sort of my broader definition of engagement and stewardship does does mean applying pressure on policymakers um, in a coordinated way. Uh, so it's it's good that they're doing that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
David Vigar is curious if you think, does the UNFCCC itself need to be stronger? Perhaps a higher profile leader to provide consistent impetus alongside these uh, COP presidencies? Um, yeah, no, look, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, there are lots of people thinking about the kind of the future of the international climate regime. So what's the best way of doing these COPs? Should we have COPs? What should they look like? Can we just make them all virtual? Do they have to be this big jamboree? If you've ever been to a COP, it's like, you know, there's thousands of people. You do, you wonder whether all those people need to be there. Is that, is that the most efficient use of resources to deliver this process? Should it happen more regularly? Why is it once a year? <laughs> lots, lots of these questions, right? Um, I think, uh, it is, it is actually very important to have a big moment to crystallize ambition and get commitments and frankly for people to come together and talk about these issues and network with each other and learn from each other. So I'm kind of a bit anti the, the argument that this should just be a, a more technical process that no one ever visits and it all happens in Bonn where the UNFCCC is based. Um, I'm also a bit, uh, yeah, it's also very important, I think, to have countries hosting it that are serious and can deploy their their convening power. I think part of the problem has been, you know, some of the UN groupings result in the same actors hosting conferences pretty regularly, and often those actors might not be the most ambitious climate champions. So, for example, Poland always is is often hosting. A COP, and that's because they're part of the UN group, and it goes around the different UN groups. Um, and they're, they're the they're the one in Eastern Europe that wants to host it, and they have the resources to host it. And then it ends up being Poland that always hosts it when it goes around to that group. So, um, I think there's also, well, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a responsibility for for countries, um, particularly ones that I think that have the means and the resources and the willpower. The UK being one of them, France being another example of, a, of another one. To, to do this and take on the responsibility more regularly, and I think that would help. Coming close to the end, but I'm going to try and squeeze two if I could in, uh, Ben. There's a lot of interest in your, um, your spatial finance points, and I'm just wondering if you could just, just tease that out a little bit more and explain why it's important and what it actually means. Yeah, so um, th this is becoming possible because of the, the huge proliferation of different satellite constellations, Earth observation platforms. So we've got a huge amount of imagery in different spectrums, different resolutions, different revisit times that allow us to see what's going on on every point on planet Earth every single day. So they're constellations that are literally taking high-resolution pictures of every point on planet Earth every single day. Now, how do you use that for financial and finance use cases? Um, and at the moment, what people are doing is they're using it for trading use cases. So let's see how much coal is on a, in a port in Australia, or let's see how much oil is stored in all storage facilities in China. And that's kind of helpful for trading decisions. The thing that I'm very excited about is tying what you see through the imagery um, to ownership. Because once you know who owns it, you can link it back to security. Um, but basically, you, you know, the, a lot of the, the risks and impacts that I'm interested in um, are inherently spatial, like, you know, the level of physical climate impact will depend on where you are in the world, um, exactly where you are in the world, right? Um, but there's so many other applications beyond just environment, climate, um, uh, that this, that's a long, much longer conversation, but I would refer you to spatialfinanceinitiative.com, which is an initiative we've set up with um, a bunch of actors to promote all of this and uh, build capacity. Yeah, that's good. Uh, actually, a couple of uh, 
things I can squeeze in. Uh, firstly, uh, I misread uh, Lasse's point. It was 3.7 trillion in uh, total assets controlled, not, not in Brazil, so a bit smaller there. Um, and on your point there, just about spatial finance, uh, Christopher Gleedle uh, was asking something related about reporting accountability being variable. What are your thoughts for a tactic setting to connect the interdependent hard and soft systems? Uh, where I think, in fact, you know, when we're looking at actual effectiveness, spatial finance is driving in that direction, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, well, it provides, ultra can provide ultra-transparency, and I think, you know, one of the things, you know, I think we can basically sequence the global economy. Um, we can know where all the assets are, or most of the assets are, and who owns them, and that allows us to do all sorts of cool things from a financial perspective, but also from other perspectives. And so um, getting that asset level data, making it available and consistent so we can develop financial products and services on the back of it is super exciting. And it's, a, it's, part, it's a, akin to the, the Human Genome Project, I think. I'd like yeah. to ramble on about this for a bit longer. <laughs> uh, yeah, the global genome. Um, and, and just a very final point, uh, quickly, if you don't mind, but, you know, there, we've all held an event where it's needed to be postponed, and there's that huge breath of, oh, now I get to do it right. <laughs> uh, what in this postponement might have been an opportunity that you as a group have now taken, saying, well, gosh, we've got an extra year to do it. Now we can do X right or do something additional. Yeah, well, uh, you know, particularly on sort of mo mobilizing financial institutions, getting commitments, of course, um, you know, there's a quarterly cycle of board meetings, and um, you've got to you've got to prime people, and then you know it's got to be talked about at the board, and then they've got to, there's got to be a commitment, and so it's very hard to do that in two quarters. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got many more now, or a few more, um, and we can start to think more about what we're trying to do month to month, um, and how those priorities will change month to month as we get get to COP. Whereas you know, if you're thinking about this over eight months and all the different things that are going on, it's a it's a bit less nuanced um, in terms of execution, uh, basically. So it's you know we have a responsibility to be much more specific about how we execute, um, and, and people, individual people, and organisations will be accountable for what they deliver um, in a way that's harder to do in a shorter period of time. And it's a big topic, and you've tried to pack a lot into 45 minutes, and we do appreciate it. If you could just hold on a second, I've got three groups I'd like to thank before we close. Uh, the first, as uh, as ever, when I open, uh, again, our sponsors who do have an intense interest in uh, climate change, uh, forestation, nature, all the topics that you mentioned there, uh, whether they're providing technologies to survey them or they're looking at the area of green finance. So I think everybody was on the call today really is behind you and would like everything to succeed. Uh, second thing, of course, is to thank all of them, uh, all of you out there in the audience for turning up. It's been a, a fascinating uh, chat. Thank you very much for your comments and questions. And I will pass on uh, the balance, including uh, many of the thanks uh, to Ben uh, after we close. Uh, a reminder, of course, that we have a variety of webinar, webinars forthcoming. Uh, tomorrow we have the ever-ebulent uh, Lawson Muncaster and my brother Sheriff Christopher Hayward talking about uh, how news has affected uh, us in the city and cities around the world during COVID. Next week we have a deep dive into central counterparties with Kathleen Tyson and Martin Watkins, uh, followed by a great one. Uh, I just love the title, uh, 
Susan, as I say, Sharon Constanza on corporate governance, why people are your board's biggest problem. I think we'll all sympathize with that. And finally, uh, on the 8th, we have a, an interesting uh, discussion on Beyond Investing, uh, looking at ethical, vegan, and other investments. So a lot coming forward. As ever, uh, do check out the website. Um, might also point out, those of you who are interested in some of the opening comments, uh, the Global Green, Global Green Finance Index number 6 uh, will be coming out in September. Uh, so please do take part. We're uh, very much looking forward to analyzing that data and presenting it in, in a few months. But in reality, uh, the biggest thing, if I can say it, is Ben, thank you. Uh, you made it today uh, an event that we were all happy to have. Um, I have here a piece of uh, wood from a Buddhist uh, monastery. It is not part of the Amazonian rainforest. It's a, apparently a piece of olive wood. And one of the difficulties is not just Zoom calls galore, but it's the inability for an audience to convey what I can see here in the questions and comments. Uh, a very heartfelt thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts today with us and taking the time. It was really, really good. Uh, and so on their behalf, I will thank you if I can. Thank you very, very thank much. And we'd love to have you back as well, um, you know, particularly with, with COP coming probably uh, maybe just before if we can help. Uh, yeah, interesting. Or certainly we'd love to hear your thoughts on how it went afterwards. So thanks so much for all the work that you're doing and hope to see you soon. Thank you.